Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. Welcome to the Vet Gurus podcast. Brendan here with Mark, episode number 82. 82, Mark. Can you believe 82 episodes? I cannot. It doesn't. It just feels like yesterday we did the first one. And um, yeah, 82 is a big number for a podcast. Wait till we hit that 100. Gee, oh, we're be- party, party, party. Giving away so many things. We'll have to have a think. We'll have to get a prize pool going, Mark. We'll, um, I'm heading off to some um, some places soon, as you know, and I'll, I'll I'll have a look for some trinkets, Mark, some some quirky little <laughs> items. And you know what I'm like with, oh, with finding weird do. and wonderful. And um, I'll get some that we you know we can fit into a little envelope or a package and we can send to wherever in the world our winner happens to come from. So it'd have to be small and light and and get through the customs in the country that we send it to. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put my thinking hat on, Mark. So yes. So vetgurus.com and you wanted to do a bit of a shout out, didn't you, Mark? I did. I was very, very keen to uh, start this podcast by m- mentioning our wonderful sponsors. Uh, um, they're, uh, you know, they're friends, but most importantly, they bring wonderful products to uh, the Australian veterinary profession and particularly products that are beneficial for us as avian and exotic practitioners. And of course, I'm talking about um, Small Animal Nutrition, uh, the Australian distributors of the wonderful Oxbow range of products for um, small mammals, small herbivorous mammals, and uh, uh, Chemical Essentials, the Australian distributor for the F10 range of products, which we use extensively in practice and dispense to many of our clients and the many forms of the antiseptic F10. Um, and of course, uh, Microchips Australia, who have wonderful microchips, of course, and um, and high quality microchips, but also a range of products uh, that uh, are specialty products, I think. And I don't think uh, Microchips Australia make a huge amount of money out of um, things like the uh, Lone Star Retractor and a number of other devices that um, really are a boon to us small animal uh, exotic animal practitioners but even small animal practitioners um, and I just sing out a special shout out to uh, all those people who've helped us by sponsoring our podcast and also bringing those products to Australian veterinarians. Here, here, and we're very proud to have them as sponsors not just because they help support us by giving us a little bit of money to help support pay for our costs of, of, of the podcast and the hosting, but they're damn good products, aren't they, Mark? So, yes, go to vetgurus.com and click on the links and support our sponsors. Well, I th- I'm going to jump, Mark, I want to jump into this first news story because I know <laughs> how amazed you were at this and uh, – not just amazed at the title of it, and this is from National Geographic. As we both know and are big fans of Nat Geo, Mark, 
Um, they have some amazing photos, but their articles and their website is um, very polished. And the title of this article was New Gecko Sheds Skin on Demand and Looks Like a Raw Chicken. <laughs> well, I was going to say to you, Brendan, that, um, you know, Nat Geo gets us in because we have that you know interest in photography we're always wowed by the photos they do have some quality scientific articles scientific based evidence-based articles but i don't know brendan this is starting to slip into you know the clickbait headlines the lead um we have a couple of uh, uh stories today that have this but looks like raw chicken oh i don't know it, um, oh, I've just looked at the photo. It definitely does look like we're cooking. <laughs> <laughs> it does, yes. So let me let me <laughs> let me continue with the story, Mark. Yes. So, Gecko Lepus Megalepus is the species, and um, what a great what a great species name there, Mark. Um, a new species of fish scaled gecko from Madagascar that can drop its scales on demand apparently all the way virtually down to the muscle layer. So it, it it joins only four other known lizard species, Mark, that lose their skin when threatened, similar to the well-known reptilian strategy of shedding the tails. So the autotomy um, that we that we see, especially in, we see reasonably commonly here, don't we, in our skink species um, in Australia. So, yeah, the newfound reptile is notable for the extraordinary size and thickness of its scales. And I encourage all our listeners to have a look at the the link to this um, particular article because the photos are, 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 are dramatic to say the least. Um, so um, its Latin name, well, as as um, you probably guessed there, Mark, means a very large scales and they are almost like bony plates um, and they can shear off, Mark, um, when it's threatened. Um, so it has these shear or tear zones um, and apparently takes about only several weeks or so for the scales to completely regenerate or regrow um, there. But, uh, yeah, pretty amazing-looking um, gecko. And, um, yeah, I must admit it does look like um, raw chicken um, <laughs> when the scales have uh, sheared off there, which, you know, um, perhaps it's not the best um, strategy there, Mark, if it sheds <laughs> off its, um, sheds off its um, scales and um, the predator thinks, gee, there's a nice little bit of chicken I can jump into there. Um, or, or, or maybe the predator then thinks, um, um, I'm a bit worried about salmonella poisoning um, from that chicken, that raw chicken I'm about to eat. So, yes, um, that's my first news article there, Mark. So, um we're following on. I'm say. following on with a um. A, it's a bit of a, a, a reptile bent with your your start with the um the uh, raw chicken lizard. Um, and um, my story uh is um, it it has uh, echoes of one of my favourite worst movies of all time. Um, snakes on a plane. Um, the real life version. Um, a Scottish woman. Um, had a holiday. In northern Australia, um, uh, she uh, uh, travelled back home, replete with uh, tropical food and pleasant thoughts of coconut sheltered sandy beaches in northern Queensland. Got home and found in her shoe a snake. When she first found it, she thought, "Oh, those funny buggers!" Uh, obviously, she thought it with a um, Scottish accent. Um, those funny buggers from uh, my family have put a rubber snake in my shoe. Um, and when she gave it a bit of a poke, it moved. 
and there was a skin in there as well. She'd flown from Queensland to Glasgow um, and there was a little spotted python who obviously, as she was packing her bags ready to go to the airport, uh, decided it was a warm and pleasant spot to stop and rest um, and uh, and then subsequently in the whole hold of the plane at some shed at skin and decided it's going to stay there and so um, and wasn't discovered until she turned up at home, Brendan. Ah, two thoughts on that article, Mark. You were you were bagging me for my uh, my first news story. Well, I, I rest my case. Um, it's thought the snake may be given to a zoo after it passes quarantine. I'd be, I'm a little bit sceptical about that. Whether or not it does end up um, end up being rehomed. Um, unfortunately, what tends to happen with most of the if we had the equivalent of an exotic um, reptile that was brought into Australia, Mark, they're, they're very unlikely to find a home, unfortunately, because of our st- strict quarantine laws. And they might, might well, they might, may find a home in heaven um, because virtually all of them are euthanized. So it would be interesting to see what happens with this particular snakey. And why is it shedding, Mark? Maybe it has mites, um, as we <laughs> as we spoke about in in our our, pr- our last episode, wasn't it? Um, about um, mite treatment. So, yes, a um, bit of a shock there, and um, it's come out unscathed there, hasn't it? Um, from um, from that little well, not a little trip, but it was a big trip, wasn't it? They don't um, get much so, bigger. Yes. No, they don't. Um, well, I'll tell you what does get bigger, Mark. Um, my second news story. Oh, your segues are big of beauty, Brendan. I'm on a roll today. And uh, this one is, well, it's worse than my first one. Um, a badger buries an entire cow in shocking new video is the headline. <laughs> it's another National Geographic one. So, yes, I think you're right. They're, um, they're going downhill a bit with their... With their um, with the quality of the reports there, but um, I was fascinated with this. I I don't know whether you've watched it, Mark. Perhaps you should hit the play button on the on the video as I'm speaking. But um, it is something quite um, mesmerising about this video, and this was um, from January t- January 2016. A um, researcher placed some carcasses in Utah's Great Basin. Um, it was a con- conservation biologist who le- who was um, just 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 for no apparent reason, Mark, he, he leaves animal corpses out in the <laughs> desert um, and he sets up cameras to record scavengers. So he's studying scavengers um, and he thought a pack of coyotes that had dragged off that it was a 50-pound calf um, and um, he, he reviewed his... Um, video footage and uh, he downloaded the cameras in, in images and um, yeah over the course of five days mark um, the photos reveal one american badger excavating tunnels beneath the calf car- carcass until the whole thing collapsed into a pit and then he covers up the carcass completely um, so he stores it and he constructed a burrow beside it and then he feasted on the carcass for 11 days straight. Um, so, yeah, it was quite um, quite interesting. Um, and uh, one of the other comments in, in this news article, a later investigation into the scientific literature revealed no one had ever recorded a badger in tomb, anything larger than a jackrabbit um, before. <laughs> so there you go. So, yeah, I, like, so, I like a badger that has, you know, High ideals that has a significant goal, and um, crikey's burying a cow that's um really setting yourself some high standards. 
Yes, and um, yeah, the puns just get um, worse and worse with the story. You know, they talk about holy cow and um, a parting shot, and they oh, it it just goes on and on. But um, yes, having said that, um, I encourage you all to to look at the video. Um, it's a bit of a time lapse video; it only goes for about a minute or so, so it won't take too much time out of your day. Although it does. Um, say um warning um could be disturbing um footage um so i quite enjoyed it actually so don't know what that says about me what's your last news story mark well my last one uh is a story about um uh large snakes um it tells the story uh of uh um, photographer Luciano Candisani, um, who has been tracking um, and photographing a number of um, anaconda, green anaconda, in uh, the jungles of Brazil. Um, and uh, this particular one, um, I think uh, she was well known to the local guides. Um, she was as thick as a truck tyre, which sort of Maybe not the most scientific uh, description <laughs> of uh, dimensions, but the anaconda have that effect on people, Brendan. They're uh, they are prone to um, well exaggeration. Um, anyway, they found her out of the water, um, entangled with a small male on the river bottom, half out of the water and the um, half in, um, and um, and. Uh, Candesani thought uh, that it was some sort of pre or post mating um, ritual, an embrace or what, whatever. He uh, did take the opportunity while they were occupied to get some excellent underwater photos from only a meter or so away, um, and he couldn't figure out what was actually going on um, until um, she dragged the male's body up into the grass um, and um, and started consuming it. Um, She'd uh, like constricted it after, um, uh, well, we assume after mating, um, and um, and uh, and then consumed it. Uh, it is there are um, some documented cases. This is not uh, a uh, precedent. There are documented cases, and it's not that surprising, I suppose, because um, uh, it's a huge investment for the large, the giant snakes uh, to make babies um, during their uh, seven, seven and a half month pregnancy. Um, they are going to have, particularly in the latter part of that uh, pregnancy, that gestation, um, they're going to have a gut full of uh, baby snakes and they're not going to be able to consume anything. So they want to get um, a fairly good number of protein meals relatively quickly about the time of mating and of course one of the richest sources of protein in close proximity immediately after mating is the much smaller and uh, defenseless uh, male that um, probably was the one who um, impregnated her. So males average only about nine feet long while the females uh, commonly get up to um, 17 and there is a record of a um, you know snakes in the uh, low 20 foot long range so um so a behavior like that the the uh you know black widow type behavior praying mantis spider now now we can add snakes to those species which um kill and consume their partners after a sexual interlude well you're full of snake stories today mark aren't you 
snakes on a plane, snakes in a suitcase, and snakes having sex. Um, I did when I I first read that uh, headline. You know my my. uh, uh, my extreme interest in um, headlines and how they draw our attention to it. I read that as exclusive picture, female anaconda strangles man after sex. And I've read it straight away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. I'd expect you to, Mark, yes, um, knowing your history. Uh, <laughs> Well, yes, there. Um, I've got nothing to say. I can't. I, I, I cannot add anything else to that story, Mark. Um, so, we haven't had a review for a while, have we? A product review. Oh my so, God! You didn't um, put this in the agenda. Now, <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, and we so have. I'm going to um, review something next time. <laughs> I can't, I can't, off the top, I just thought we haven't done a review for a while. So yes, we need to review something, unless. You can think of something you have recently purchased that um, I've actually. One of the things I've just uh, I I will um, canvas for the future. I've just um, purchased a mount for um, the microscope to one of the we we continually take photographs of things down the microscope with our phones at work now. Um, And when I bought the microscope, I was a it was hugely more expensive to buy a. Um, a specific camera um, from the Olympus people to fit on the microscope. And um, and so we didn't, and I've regretted it ever since. But now there's a special mount I can stick onto an eyepiece and it will hold my iPhone in the precise position to get um, an image, so the ad says anyway. Um, so I, that's going to be something I'm going to review in the next few weeks, Brendan. Good. Yes, good. Um, we have. Um, I'm just trying to think of the. Bra- I think we just got a no name brand, um, little two or three megapixel camera um, on on our mountain. It's um, it works well. It's it's great for especially when you've got uh, a sk- skin scraping and you find some mites on there, um, and you show the client. It's um, it's, it's a great education. Um, Material, isn't it? It's fantastic. It's uh, there's the mites on your animal that we need to treat, and um, they, um, I don't think they've ever then not gone ahead with the treatment regime that we recommend once you point out um, the wriggling little crit- critters under the microscope. So yeah, um, it's um, it's it's good. So I, I look forward to the review, Mark, um, which may be the next episode. Have have you received it yet? Oh, no, just um, uh, sent off. Ordered. Yeah, yeah, just ordered. Excellent. And uh, I may have a film review soon too um, and, uh, and a book review that I want to, um, I want to um, chat a little bit about. I have a veterinary-related a veterinary book and also a non-fiction uh, book um, as well, Mark. So You're lots to look forward to. Lots to look forward to in the coming episodes. And I think I flicked over to you a, a photograph recently of a of a bookcase, didn't I, Mark? You did indeed, Brendan. And and I um look, you know, I regularly completely take the piss out of all your woodworking, but I I I am genuinely genuinely impressed with your uh, craftsmanship, and um and you know I'm the sort of woodworker who you know has trouble getting um well straight cut, let alone getting a whole bunch of straight cuts and putting them together and having the thing line up, you know, perpendicular and parallel, all square. I am genuinely impressed with your woodwork, Brendan. 
Well, as I say, I just follow the plans and uh, now it's a smallish bookcase and it's part of this little course that I've been doing and it's the second last project, Mark, so there's one more project to do before I get my certificate. Oh, that's um, big good. And I've been thoroughly enjoying it and, um, yeah, I'll – I have to find out. Well, he does have a follow-up course, this um, this person, so I may end up doing that. Um, but and uh, being quite quite proud of my um, my constructions, Mark. Um, although Annie, my dear wife, um, deflated me as she tends to do fairly quickly and readily and easily, um, although not necessarily deliberately. Um, <laughs> I, sh- I showed her the bookcase. <laughs> And said, and 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 her her first comment was, um, "Oh, that's good. Where are you going to put it?" Um, because most of the projects that are, are um, and they build on each other as far as the actual skills that you're developing, um, different, you know, like this one's box construction, for instance. Um, so you build all your different skill levels with your tools um, as as the projects become more complex. Um, and unfortunately, most, if not all, of the projects, apart from uh, one of the bench seats, are, are products that we have um, no, no area that <laughs> no. we can put them in our house. So, um, and I, I and I've been to you. your house, and um, and yes. and it's <laughs> an an exquisite place to live. But I can see Annie's um interior design has a very particular and spartan aesthetic brendan and and um and yes she she likes that on almost that scandinavian type look doesn't she the very very clean lines and and not really austere but um yeah um um <laughs> yes so she said to me after i showed her the bookcase and she said well done um and i said oh there's only one more project to go and i told her what that project is and she and she hesitated for a moment and she said, oh, so you'll be finished soon. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, yes. Uh, and her reply was, uh, good, then you can make something useful <laughs> <laughs> that we can use. Oh, so, um, we love it, Eddie. It, it deflated me, but um, I could see a point. Um, I, I did place one of the one of the variations on the, on the large coffee table um, as, as I mentioned to you mark off air one stage um i i shrank the size of that and it's a little waiting room table at work so i'm in in the waiting room and it works quite well so yeah that's that's what i've been up to um so yes well let's jump into our our main topic mark and this is a we've had a couple of these probably not enough of them and that's a, a general general advice and a bit of an over an overview of a particular species and this week we're going to talk about ferrets and um, basic ferret care and um, as usual we'll probably chop and change and, and go off on some tangents there but we want to we want to get across some of the key features and preventative health aspects and and the care and management of, of ferrets um, as pets so well, I've got, I've, got, well. I've got some questions for you then, Brendan. Sure. Um, uh, there are some. There are the ferrets are one of the species of exotic pets that there are some state-based jurisdictional differences in ownership, isn't there? So, um, do, do, do you know which? I know Queensland. There absolutely illegal and i i don't know where else yeah so it's i mean it does and and same with with 
similar in certain other countries as well and that, um, that, that there's vast differences between states and territories um, in Australia and, and other countries where one state you can keep ferrets and another state you can, can't, cannot and um, even more so within states in some areas and in particular I think in some of the US states there's some cities within states that that ban um, ferrets and other regions within the state that may may have them as a as a pet um, i may be incorrect with that but so i, I think the first comment there would be market to generalize it and say yeah you need to check with your local authorities yeah and it's pretty um, important i was gonna well you'll you'll give an example i'm sure but not only are there um penalties for people keeping them as pets um, in those jurisdictions, but there is also the possibility that veterinarians could get into trouble. So, like you said, very, very important to be aware of your local um, legislative requirements when it comes to ferrets. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, check. And um, then you run into that difficulty, which which all of us who deal with unusual or exotic pets um, have um, when they're presented with a with a with an illegal pet, um, if if we speak more generally about that, and, and um, I know we've spoken a little bit about it on previous podcasts, and we'll reiterate sort of our approach to it or my approach to it, Mark, um, as you well know, is um, to try and educate the client. If if I know that a client has brought in a pet that's illegal in in our region, um, I will be trying to educate them and say, look, hey, this this is or are the reasons why we shouldn't be keeping this unusual pet as a species and, and why it's illegal and um, perhaps um, you should consider handing it into the authorities um, or at least at the bare minimum um, making sure it's um, completely locked away safely and it doesn't um, doesn't get out there because um, we, we definitely do have um, some non-native species that have bred and continue to breed quite readily um, in the wild and compete with the native native wildlife which is one of the key reasons why we don't why we have these particular regulations and legislations mark so the interesting thing brendan is that um since we have discussed this a number of times and uh, i know that in new south wales since we've discussed it last time um those legis that that uh, law has changed and become a little bit more onerous and so um and not so much with ferrets, we're allowed to treat those. But um, there are a number of those uh, the other animals that uh, the Department of Agriculture and the New South Wales government have identified as significant problems, and uh, and they are making much more significant demands on veterinarians who might see them. So definitely uh, not only do different jurisdictions have different laws, but uh, those laws change over time. So make yourself aware of them is my tip. Absolutely. So let's assume that you can have a <laughs> ferret in, in the region that you are presented with a ferret for a, for a basic health check and let's approach it with a with a youngish ferret mark. Say somebody brings in a, a 12-week-old, a three-month-old ferret um, that they've, that they've um, gone out and maybe perhaps an impulse buy and that they um, did, did purchase it online um, through, a, through a breeder that advertises online and they bring this ferret as a as a naive ferret owner um to your clinic um what sort of things are we going to chat to that client about oh about goodness, um, basic husbandry oh my goodness um we're going to chat to them about a heap of things a heap 
of things. Um, we're going to uh, talk to them about um, about the whole problem with um, desexing and the potential for anemia in female ferrets, and of course how um, desexing or control of reproductive activity might have an impact on adrenal disease. Those things we're going to discuss initially. We're going to one of the things that um, that we have found. Uh, locally to be, uh, um, well, particularly because we've had increasing effects of global warming and uh, extreme weather events um, is the risk of heat stroke. And amongst all the animals we get to see, um, some of our small herbivorous mammals and uh, and ferrets are the least good at um, dealing with extremes of temperature. In the wild, they uh, have, you know, ferrets... Uh, Survive in uh, have evolved from animals that uh, live in um, very cool climates, and so our forty plus days, uh, if the ferrets don't have the opportunity to cool down, they are, are very they can die of heat stroke. Um, so, uh, making provision for that, um, we're going to, to have I mentioned vaccination. I want to ask no, you about haven't. vaccination, Brendan, because we have had this discussion a number of times. We routinely vaccinate our ferrets against distemper. They are susceptible, um, and particularly in the days when uh, people in Australia went ferreting, they would actually breed ferrets and take them out to hunt rabbits. Um, those ferrets had a good chance of coming into contact with foxes, and uh, and certainly the... Um, uh, many years ago, I saw cases of ferrets with distemper, but it's been many years since uh, since I've seen those cases. And I know you did a bit of a uh, was it a would we call it an informal survey of veterinarians around Australia to see uh, whether they were seeing distemper? We still vaccinate for it, but um, but yes, and I still recommend vaccinating um, pet ferrets. It's it, it is a bit of a bit of a complex subject, isn't it? Um, so. Yeah, we are vaccinating against the same distemper that, as you mentioned, that we see in our canids. And um, I, I regard, you know, the general thought is that it's invariably fatal um, in ferrets um, if they if they catch this particular um, virus. So what do we do? Well, we do recommend in our practice, we recommend um, two or three vaccinations, similar to our puppy or our, our kitten vaccination schedule for those animals at, at roughly the same age as Mark. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a ferret-specific vaccine. So um, we don't have, a, in Australia here, we don't have a vaccine that's registered for use in ferrets. So it is an off-label use of the of the vaccine. And we are currently using a, a C3 vaccine um, because these days, and I, I haven't seen one for, for many years, we don't have a distemper-only vaccine that we can reach for, which we could Probably, I don't know, five or ten years ago, we could we could just purchase a distemper. <laughs> I think it's closer component. to 20 years ago. <laughs> Is it 20 years ago? Time flies when you're getting old, doesn't it, Mark? Um, so we end up using a C3 vaccine and the, the, the good news and bad news with that, the good news is that um, it has been widely used. Um, in our practice, we use the... Um, the primarily the Nobivac um, brand of vaccines, and um, it, the same vaccine is used um, 
in various other countries um, for vaccinating ferrets for distemper, including the UK, and there's many thousands of do- or tens of thousands, I think, doses that have been used and the the um, reported um, reactions to it um, are, are very few and far between. So, um, so and. Most of the vaccine manufacturers have done internal studies, um, small numbers of ferrets where they have vaccinated them and, and followed them and, and measured teeter levels and, and worked out that they do get an immune response to the vaccine. So they, they do get an immune response to that canine vaccine. Um, in some countries like the US, they do have ferret um, specific line um, and registered um, vaccines um, for ferrets. And they have to um, vaccinate them for rabies as well in America, don't they? Yeah, yes. Um, so, yes, so um, the difficulty is that um, the, the, the concern with potentially um, two things. One is um, um, whether or not we um, we see um, vaccine-induced um, um, neoplasia with them um, and the other big concern is um, the possibility of um, vaccine-induced distemper, um, Mark, which has has been reported and it has been reported here in Australia and and I know it has been reported in other countries as well. So it's a... Gee, it's a it's a bit of a tricky one with with, with um you know do you spend an hour in a consultation trying to go through the pros and cons of, of vaccinating their ferrets and and prevention versus um risk um of 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 this particular um virus um, um my bottom line with um my personal thoughts are that yes we still vaccinate ferrets um do we see distemper in Australia? Um, yes, um, it has been reported in, in pet ferrets, including up until um, the last few years. Um, there has been um, confirmed cases. Um, is it um, common? No, um, I, I'd, I'd state it as rare, um, but um, I'd still recommend vaccinating for them. How often we vaccinate them is a bit of a conundrum because um, the, there are good studies showing that the vaccine that is used overseas, so not necessarily the one that we use here in Australia, um, may provide protection for for at least a year, perhaps several years, or, or perhaps even the life of that ferret mark um, with with um, one or two vaccines um, from a from a young ish age um, for the ferret. So the question there is: to how often do we vaccinate these ferrets or revaccinate the ferrets? And um, my current protocol is that I still recommend for an adult ferret. Um, I give, uh, I recommend annual vaccinations. But once they get into about four or five, which is, in my opinion, they get into a geriatric age, um, I, I start to think about perhaps not um, suggesting we vaccinate every year because the, the the last vaccination it had may may be enough to to last it for the rest of the life. And I'm just a little bit tad concerned with with vaccinating an aged um, patient that may have a, a, a compromised immune system um, and they may be the ones that um, might be more prone to developing a vaccine-induced um, um, illness. So I think, it's, yeah, I that's think there's of- a lot of wisdom in all that stuff that you've said, Brendan, and it fits very closely with what we do. One of the questions I have for you, though, is that when we do those vaccines, we use a C3, um, we depend on... Um, some research that was done by one of the vaccine manufacturers um, nearly 20 years ago, which suggested a sixth of a dose was all that was required. Do you have a? Do you give them the whole vial, or do you divide it up? What do you? How much do you give them? 
Well, I think that one-sixth of our went back to that particular manufacturer. That was their recommendations based on their little internal study. And uh, we use a whole vial of the particular brand that I just mentioned that we use. And that's because that's what they recommend based on, informally based on their internal studies. Um, The frustrating thing about that is most of these um, companies, when you try and get their actual studies, I have seen a couple of summaries of some of these um, uh, vaccine companies companies so they're very they hold these um, little studies very tight to their chests and they um, are very reluctant to to release um, the results showing you know that that it proves that they do get a nice immune response with them which I think's not only frustrating I, I think it's not not the right thing to do but um, that's where it comes from that one six of oval and the way I recommended it. it's very similar to what I'd recommend with a dog or a cat or a kitten you know you don't I don't separate I don't give it a very tiny kitten one one fifth of a vial of the f um, f3 vaccine just because it's a tiny kitten um, and I don't give a big fat obese cat you know two vials of, of the vaccine um, and when you look at the basic pharmacology Ecological um, aspects of it, and the pharmacology, pharmacodynamics of, of, of vaccine manufacturer. If I'm if I'm incorrect, correct me, Mark. It's it's um, the whole aim of um, one vial is that it's it's playing the odds that um, it will provide at least enough um, vaccine for that individual. Um, so it's probably it probably would be enough to vaccinate two or more um, of of the species in question, and that would include. What happens with the human vaccines when we're when we're getting the flu vaccine or whatever? Um, so it's just it's just based on um, their their mathematics and their pharmacological data that that's enough that'll cover um, adequately um, um, to give an immune response in 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 virtually you know ninety nine percent or whatever of the individuals of that species. Well, it. Blow me over. There's another thing that we do different. We're just falling apart at the seams, Brendan. We're just, I don't know. I don't know what's <laughs> going on with us. Um, so tell me about. You're saving a lot. You're saving um, a lot of um, um, cents there, aren't you? Um, I was going to say dollars, but it's probably only cents um, by dividing it into, well, six, into um, six. Yeah, divided into six, but generally we've got just one ferret each time, so we throw out the other five six ah yes <laughs> so um uh the other thing you we've got on to vaccines because we were talking about uh, what we're talking what we're going to tell that uh 12 week old ferret owner the the ferret's 12 weeks not the owner um uh what we're going to tell them at that consult there's two other important things i think i forgot to mention um the first one was um uh that i want them to feed a diet that's appropriate for ferrets. And I'll get you to tell me about that in a minute, Brendan. Um, But the other thing is that um, people need to be aware that ferrets are a scabe artists of the highest order and they need to um, design, redesign their whole house pretty much um, in such a way that, um, that there are no means of escape. Because if there are any means of escape, any holes, any little tiny nooks or crannies, um, then the ferrets with their inquisitive nature and their interest in what is going on in a tiny, tiny little hole will go through it and you'll lose them. So they have to ferret-proof their property. So, Brendan, tell me what do you tell your clients about um, feeding their ferret? Yes, 
Yes, they are very inquisitive and they are good escape artists. Yes, so diet, yeah. It's, well, you know me, I'm pretty basic. I get back <laughs> to basics with this sort of thing. So what are they? They're a strict carnivore. Um, so in the wild, they will be eating whole animals. So um, I, 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 and I literally say that to the client and I say, look, you have two choices here, two broad choices with, with feeding your little ferrety friend. And one is feeding them the whole animal diet, and some clients will go with that. Um, most clients won't because they they don't want their ferret um, dragging around the entrails of a of a frozen thawed mouse or a rat or a frozen thawed guinea pig or, or, or rabbit. Um, but you do get the odd client that will be feeding them those that whole animal diet, and that's a fine diet for that animal um, because they're crunching on the skin, the bones, the organs, and um, they're um that they are getting an adequate diet and i think a lot of people fall down with 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 the thought about them being a carnivore and then they do the typical thing that we see with some of the reptile owners um mark where they'll just feed them uh, meat so i'll just feed them mince or they'll just feed them chicken or and they might they might they might look at me proudly and say oh but i feed them a variety of meats (laughs) i feed them a bit of um, venison and i feed them a bit of chicken and i feed them a bit of mince and a bit of buffalo meat or whatever and and I just, I just don't reply. I just keep staring at them, and and um, then they fall in a quivering, quivering heap on the floor in the consult room. No, um, I'm very nice to them. Um, so it's the whole animal diet, or the other one is that um, a a complete diet. And we'll talk about what my thoughts are on a complete diet for a, a complete carnivore, um, a pelleted diet. And and fortunately, there are an increasing number of um, dry foods, pelleted type foods that um, are reasonably suitable for a ferret. Um, you know, the basis for that um, diet for a ferret is going to going to be three or four things, Mark, um, that I that I tend to stress, and that's. Um, um, high protein, and typically we're, I think we're talking about something like 35% or higher um, with them, um, moderate fat, and that protein um, needs to be an animal-based protein, so that's a really important one in that they're not being fed a, a dry food that's um, mainly a plant-based protein because it, it won't work. No uh, tofu. Yes, no, no tofu um, pellets for them. Um, moderate fat and, and low fibre um, because they have, they have that – you know, really classic sort of carnivore, monogastric stomach and um, um, a very quick, potentially really quick gut transit time. So from the time of a ferret taking something into its mouth to um, pooping it out the other end mark, it can be as quick as three or four hours. So it can be really quick. So the final thing I tend to stress to the client is the digestibility of that um, that dry food that they're feeding so it has to be really good quality it has to be very digestible so the poorer quality foods they might have high protein moderate fat low fiber which is what we want and um, be a be a meat-based fiber uh, meat-based protein but it may be really poorly digestible so what's going to happen with that it'll just go through the ferret and it will just come out as voluminous feces out the other end and the ferret won't have won't be able to digest it and break it all down and um, absorb it. Um, so, the good so that so the other good news with those pelleted sort of foods, there are some specific ferret marketed ones, and and there's several different ones based on which country um, you are in. So you'll need to have a look at which particular ferret foods you can get from the big pet stores. Um, but otherwise, um, there's been some pretty 
pretty good studies done, Mark, that have been published research um, comparing the different types of the premium kitten dry foods that are on the market. And um, I'm talking about the dry foods like the Royal Canaan kitten versions, the um, Hills um, Science Diet um, and those sorts of equivalent ones. And and they're pretty damn clo- close to the requirement. So more often than not, I, I'd um, be recommending those as the basis of a good diet for, for that little ferret that comes in at the 12-week-of-age um period mark so i'd be saying feed them primarily on 90 95 of one of those um one of those good dry foods and it um it sounds just like a bloody record because it's exactly what i say the one other thing i add to it though is that um those young ferrets are um uh i almost think of it as a period of time in their life where they're um uh, they can be imprinted, and once they have a particular sort of food and nothing else for a period of time, they may not uh, be interested in eating anything else. So I do like to suggest that while the people get a high-quality dry food, a, a kitten or ferret-specific one, um, that they chop and change it a little bit over those first few months that they acquire the ferret so that they're happy to eat it because there's nothing worse than getting them accustomed to a particular food um, and then for whatever um, logistical reason that food becomes temporarily unavailable and you've, they they often will be so finicky that they won't eat it. Um, they, they are... They like most inquisitive carnivores. They're pretty keen to have a snack on something really sweet, um, and so they will have a go at um, fruits and um, some dairy foods and human junk foods and dried biscuits, that sort of stuff. Um, wet foods just are inadequate, aren't they, Brendan? They don't. The the dilution by water means that the volume of food the ferret can eat uh, is not going to satisfy their protein or caloric caloric requirements so don't give them any canned food don't give them minced chopped up meat um, all those other things are just going to cause problems yes and sugary products as well so they do have a bit of a bit of a sweet tooth and that's getting back to when you think about this animal as a wild species it's not going to be eating much sugar at all is it it's eating those whole animal diets so um, and there is some concerns or thoughts that Perhaps long-term feeding of lots of sugary items may, although it hasn't been proven at all, <laughs> um, may be a contribution to some of the diseases that we see in ferrets. Um, so if we're feeding these dry diets, the other thing I'd stress for that other 5 or 10% of the diet, Mark, is is trying to keep those teeth clean. So um, it is, see it, lots, it is. lots of ferrets oh, with dental disease. Yes, we yeah. do. It would be prob- – well, there's lots of reasons we anaesthetise them, but Cleaning their teeth is a very common one, um, and if we can get them in the habit of doing whatever it is that cleans their teeth from a young age, that makes a difference to their quality of life. Yes, and what would that be that you're recommending for those teeth? Well, generally, generally um, we've sort of drifted a little bit as those prey items have gotten um, more available as people keep reptiles in New South Wales now and they couldn't uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, Pet stores do have those frozen um, uh, prey items available, quail and mice and whatnot. And so we we are now more... F- and I find they're a good, um, uh, you know, a- a environmental enrichment. Um, the, the ferrets are 
genuinely um, interested and active and it's different and um, and they do crunch those bones up and uh, and that's probably the first thing that we're suggesting that people do. We, we don't have much success with um, teeth brush work um uh, that it um is yes. it's not a very easy thing to get a a ferret to uh, cope with that yeah some of them will eat and i always encourage the clients to try a variety of the of the dog dental um dental sort of products and some of them seem to really enjoy the greenies mm-hmm. um which are available available throughout most of the world um others can't be bothered using them at all, um, chewing them at all. Um, and I also suggest, um, you know, um, carcasses, so um, rabbit necks, um, um, chicken wings, um, you know, various sort of um, raw meaty bones to try and tempt them. And I, I think you touched on a really important point is to try and get them chewing on some of these products at a very young age um, before they become sort of used to or imprinted with their dietary dietary habits there mark yeah do you see many fat ferrets we do see a few um that uh that obviously have had access to high caloric diets um and um yeah not a lot though they 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 do tend to go through that annual cycle more pronounced than many other species they um they put on a whole lot of weight um um in the summer um and then in the winter they tend to burn it off as they cope with the lower temperatures um but yeah they um it certainly is the case that um, we see occasional obese ferrets yes well so what are we talking about we've spoken about diet um we've spoken about another d the distemper um I want you to talk about another D, Mark, the D-sexin. Oh. Um, what are we going to say to that client about D-sexin? There's, there's two, they're sort of wrapped up uh, uh, two Ds in that one, Brendan. Um, we'll often get asked by people uh, about descenting, And funnily enough, it is often those impulse buyers who come in. Uh, they've just recently acquired a ferret. I know people will be surprised that uh, from around the world that here in Australia we have people who impulse buy pets, but it does happen, believe it or not. And um, <laughs> and uh, and they will you know, get online and the first thing they'll see is that um, there is a... Uh, um, a process called descenting, but we don't recommend it all that much, Brendan. Um, we find that um, despite what's said online, um, removing the scent glands often uh, doesn't of itself change the smell of a ferret that much. And it is, you know, ferrets only release the contents of those um, uh, scent glands, uh, analogous to anal sacs, when they're stressed. And so the best thing to do to prevent that odour is to make sure they're not stressed, I reckon. Um, But then... Yes, go on. And I think a a lot of... Sorry, Mark. Yes, a lot of that ferrety smell is under hormone. Yes, I was going to say that leads into the desecting. And there are... Yeah, there are some countries where it is illegal um, to to descent ferrets, and I think some of the European countries. So, and I treat it analogous to not that it's illegal in Australia to do it, but um, I treat it like ear cropping and tail docking. That it's a cosmetic procedure that should not be done. Yes, I agree with you. But it does lead me to then talk about desexing them, which uh, does have the because a lot of the odor is under hormonal control, and we all know that entire hob that comes in um, and stinks the whole 
room down, the consult room down for the rest of the day, um, they uh, smell much, much more than the dissexed males that we um, that we get to see uh, who don't have the same odour problem. So desexing them is really important. It has also a protective effect. Uh, means that the gills that get stuck in season um, and develop an aplastic anemia, that doesn't happen um, if they are desexed. Um, and of course, there's the um, concern that... Um, Adrenal disease will be uh, affected by um, the the um, the reproductive tract, and so desexing them to limit the chance of uh, those problems arising is good as well. Brendan, oh sorry, Mark. Guess what? I had my um, I had my little microphone on mute. So my my question to you then was when what. When do you recommend desexing and by what method? <laughs> These are very, very uh, insightful questions, Brendan. Um, what we do currently, and this is a little bit of an area of flux, of change, of new research data coming to the fore each year. And um, one of my colleagues from the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital is in Europe, uh, in London at the moment at Eye Care, and I'll be very interested to hear some of her um, recollections of the conference and particularly as it uh, pertains to ferrets but because we do know there's lots of information coming out all the time but my current recommendation um, is that we desex them by uh, surgery at six months of age. Have you, uh, do you have another technique Brendan? Well, the the other option and I am increasingly doing it with some of our other small mammals is Chemically desexing them, so using the implants, using the Deslorin implants. So there's another D mark. I know. Um, we've got we've got diet desexing Deslorin um, distemper descenting. Yes. Um, so this episode should have been called the D's. So there are a few where I just recommend, hey, let's um, let's just try the implant early on when it's um, around about six months or just over, and you can answer the question, why do you wait to six months and what's the concern about desexing them early, Mark? But just hang off for a sec. Um, and uh, and then we will surgically desex them um, a year or so after that, Mark, because the um, Desloran implants seem to work quite well um, in um, chemically desexing them for at least a year, if not um, much longer than that, Mark. So why do we not want to desex them at a very early age? What's the concern? Well, the concern is that um, the maturation process, the process of those sex hormones up to the the time of puberty, around six months of age, um, has an effect on the adrenal gland, the sex cells in the adrenal gland, the uh, cells that produce the the uh, traces of sex steroids um, are influenced by the presence of um, those hormones up to puberty. And that has a, a an effect at limiting the chance of developing adrenal disease later in life. That's the current thought process, Brendan. Yes, so let's assume we've desexed our little friend and it's had its vaccinations. Um, there's one other, there's one other, um, maybe perhaps a little bit controversial preventative health thing that um, or, or product that 
I usually still recommend here in Australia, but I must admit that I cannot recall ever seeing a positive case, and that's heartworm, Mark. Um, Do you recommend heartworm prevention? We do recommend heartworm prevention, Um, and as you have said, that it's not something that I can... It's incurable when there's no treatment. If we get a dog that has heartworm, we can contemplate treating it, but there's no treatment for ferrets. So if it does happen, then we're in trouble. But um, the key thing is that um, we haven't, we don't see it, but we do recommend treatment because we like, oh, we love giving them a dose of um, revolution, celamectin, because it, um, it does treat a whole bunch of other things that we see with them. Yes, well, I... I must admit, I, I recommend two possible things. One's the Selamectin, the revolution, um, and the other one that probably in preference, Mark, is is a pro-heart injection um, because of convenience, and I usually time that with using um, uh, the vaccination so they have the yearly vaccination and their pro-heart injection. Um, and I think the pro-heart injection is commonly recommended as a preventative um, for, for heartworm and ferrets um, throughout several countries um, or many countries in the world, Mark. But, yes, I, um, as far as um, positive cases, uh, I must admit I, I cannot recall um, ever seeing or at least diagnosing a positive one in a ferret, even though I do recommend it. So I, I say to the client that it's rare. Um, it has been reported in Australia um, in, in ferrets. Um but if they are going to drop one thing off the preventative um, processes that we're going to recommend, um, I usually say it's um, recommend that if they're limited with funds, that it's the um, heartworm prevention that they'll that they'll drop um, and, and concentrate on the other ones. We're lucky that um, most of our clients are don't um, need to drop anything on a financial basis, Brendan. They're perfectly happy most of the time to go all the way. Yes, well, they're not all being chauffeur-driven <laughs> to the um, clinic for the consultation like um, your clients are, Mark. So, yeah, we live in a different demographic, um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what should, well, we're, we're just about out of time, but we, and we've only really covered the bare basics, haven't we? we? We've spoken a little bit about we haven't. We should really chat just for a couple of minutes, just for a couple of minutes, about enclosure. I know you mentioned about it being escape proof, Mark. Now we've we've spoken about diet, we've spoken about vaccination, we've spoken about desexing, and we've spoken about um, not descenting um, ferrets. Um, so what's your recommendations? What's the basics of a of a little enclosure? And and you did really stress the point that um, when a ferret's out of its um it's a little den or it's a little um, enclosure and needs to be supervised at all time because they like to get into trouble. What do you put in that enclosure, Mark? Um, what do they have there? Um, well, what do we put in? Um, the, the, you've hit the nail on the head with the escape-proof part. That's absolutely critical. Um, we like to put a lot of... Um, Things for them to hide in, a lot of tubes, a lot of um, uh, um, uh, hammocks, a lot of, um, they just love getting in and out of things. So the activities, boxes, um, things that they can roll around in and get into, the environmental enrichment, Brendan, um, that's probably the main thing. Um, Is there something else you're trying to push me towards? No, just the environmental enrichment, and and it can be simple. Um, they need 
they need the obvious things. They need a, a water source in there at all times, perhaps two of them if the, if you've got a ferret that's particularly prone to being a bit silly with its um, dish of water. So you might have a sipper um, type um, water. Um, we like those water heavy, you know, the heavy ceramic ones. They yeah, porcelain sort of ceramic. Yes, def- definitely. Um, a nice hide area, and the and the typical ones that are sold at the pet shops are, are, are variations on hammocks and those sorts of things, I suppose, um, because I like to sort of cuddle up into a into a bit of a hammock sort of setup. But but lots of little they love tunnels, so um, and they love destroying things as well as we sort of mentioned. So that could be having lots of little cardboard tubes and boxes and that but one of the favorite things i tend to recommend to clients is going down to the, one of their local hardware stores and, and buying lots of little plastic plumber yes. pipes and and making little mazes for them and and changing the changing the maze um fairly frequently so they've got different different um things and, and putting their little treats doing a bit of environmental enrichment and and um regarding their their access to their food sources mark so hiding the food um at the end of a maze and and giving them um something to do to spend some time trying to trying to ferret out so to speak um, their food <laughs> Well, that corny <laughs> pun there, Mark. Which, You've just um, broken me up. Which, uh, which I, um, which um, as usual, um, didn't go down too well. Um, I think we should finish up, unless there's anything else you think we need to chat about about basic ferret no, I care. I think there, we've Mark. covered it, um, and we there's other things that'll lead on to in future podcasts. Yes, and we'll we'll um, concentrate on some of the other ferret-specific diseases. And we have, if you have a look at vetgurus.com, you will see um, a couple of episodes to some of the some of the ferret-specific diseases. Um, we we chat about insulinoma in ferrets, which is commonly seen. We talk about um, ferret adrenal gland disease. So it's searchable at vetgurus.com. You can input ferret and um, well. Who knows? Nothing may pop up, but hopefully, um, the previous episodes where we've had uh, chats about ferrets will be in there. So, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.